time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. The Christmas holiday season has now officially kicked off. Uh. So let me see if I have this right. Easter begins with um, Good Friday. Christmas season begins with Black Friday. Apparently, uh, Christmas has been turned into an economic holiday. Your job as a good Christian and good patriot is to buy as much stuff as humanly possible, even if you have to put it on credit, and uh, and then you know exchange gifts. If, if you don't do this, then the entire economy will collapse, and you will personally be held responsible. Uh, for the uh, the collapsed economy. So, John, are you planning on spending a lot of money? No. Yeah, no, me no. either. Got to have but, money. But, but it, it's the start of Advent, not Christmas. Uh, oh, oh. Well, see, now you're thinking religiously. You know what's wrong with you? <laughs> All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Christ. And the purpose of the show is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment, and basically ask the questions: Is what you're hearing? Biblical Christianity, or is it something else? And in the uh, in the idea of fair play, okay, don't take my word for it. If you disagree with something I say and say, wait a second, I don't know if I believe that, then challenge the host. Send me an email. Say, now that's not how I read scripture. Have you thought of this? Okay. Why? Because um, last time I checked, I'm not God. Okay. And so you've been wrong before. Yes. And I will be wrong again. <laughs> so, you know, that's this is this is how this is all played. The whole idea behind discernment is, is that, you know, I'm going to challenge something based upon my reading of Scripture. And if you think I'm not challenging something properly based upon your reading of Scripture, then you need to send me an email and say, yo, Chris, I'm not sure if you're uh, if I'm reading you right. For instance, last week I made the comment that uh, the Bible had as much to say about smoking as it does about unicorns. Now, if I had done a lot of reading in the King James Version, I would have realized that apparently unicorns are mentioned in the King James Version. <laughs> See, this is, this, is, this is problematic because, you know, I was basically trying to find some kind of a spurious thing. So I should have said the Bible has as much to say about the Easter Bunny, Easter as, it, bunny. as it does unicorns. But um, I got an email from Mike Sutherland, and you know he he's uh, from uh, Guthrie, Oklahoma, and he points me to the uh, King James Version, which, ironically, actually I shouldn't say ironically, funny enough, I happen to have a copy of the King James Version Bible on my computerized Bible. So um, when you <laughs> when you type when you switch over to King James Version, you do a word search and you look for all text, and you type in the term unicorn. Oddly enough, passages come up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That means you were wrong. Yeah, see, apparently, if I didn't know that unicorns were biblical animals. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? You know? <laughs> uh, for instance, Numbers 23-22. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath as it were, the strength of a unicorn. That's what the text says in the King James Version. Now, this is a little problematic because, you know, the, 
the the Hebrew the Hebrew word there is it really is probably better translated as wild ox, but um, you know somehow uh, M got translated as unicorn in the King James version. Next time, specify color. Color, purple unicorns. Yes. yes. See, yeah. All right. You know, and and to make things even more problematic, you know, this feeling rather silly here. Here we got Numbers twenty four eight in the King James version. It says, "God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn." There we go, unicorn again. Actually, it's better translated wild ox. Uh, Deuteronomy thirty three seventeen. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. Didn't know unicorns had horns. Plural. That kind of just well, many unicorns, many horns. Yeah, what would be the plural of unicorns? Would it be unicorns? I I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there's some great Latin phrase for it. So anyway, <clears throat> sometimes a host reaches into his you know mental bag, and things being a little rusty, um, I'll pull stuff out that isn't always on par here. So here's the deal: don't take my word for it. Test what I say against God's word. And, folks, test anything anybody teaches you according to God's word. If if what they're teaching you is true, it's it's going to bear out. And if it's false, it's not. And uh, now I'm not saying that there's unicorns. I'm basically saying that there's probably a far better translation than the King James out there because the King James, I don't think it's faithfully working with the Hebrew text there. But, you know, nev- nevertheless, um, Mike makes a good point. That uh, I, if I, when I'm making a point, I need to find another spurious word to make my point. So, purple unicorns maybe um, might go with the Easter Bunny instead. Although, in some bizarre translation like the Message or that new Emergent translation, the Easter Bunny might actually appear. Go with chocolate. Chocolate Easter Bunny. Chocolate Easter Bunny, with no ears. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds it reminds me of that. Uh, the, have you seen that photograph of the two chocolate Easter bunnies? One has his bum nibbled, and the other has his ears gone. And the uh, the the, the Easter bu- the chocolate Easter bunny that had his bum nibbled off says, "My butt hurts." And the other Easter bunny says, "What? Can't hear you." <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a perfectly appropriate Christmas joke. All right. <laughs> So today we're going to be doing a listener email. We've got some news items that we're going to be going through and uh, got a news story here from the uh, Christian Post as well as from that potpourri religious website known as BeliefNet, you know, which is kind of the uh, the blender of all religious things, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, New Age, contemplative. It, it all just gets swirled together in one big spiritual goulash. Tony Jones of the Emergent Church recently uh, wrote there on it, talking about how he went from there to here regarding same-sex marriage. Okay, so he's he's apparently changed his position on same-sex marriage. We're going to read about that. And uh, today we're also going to take a look at that. Now uh, It's now declared to be on the bestseller list, Rick Warren's new book, The Purpose of Christmas. I guess the male version of potpourri is more appropriate here. Pope, what's the male version of potpourri? Composting. Compost. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so today we're going to be talking about Rick Warren's Purpose of Christmas. It just all depends on how time goes. So um, anyway, I've been getting quite a few uh, shots lately from people who uh, are taking issue with the fact that I, it, it seems that I just 
I'm taking perfectly good Christian brothers and just demeaning them and bringing them down. Can you believe that? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, apparently I need to find something better to do with my time instead of pointing out error, right? Um, which basically tells me that I've gotten under these people's skin and they, you know, so rather than address the error that's brought up, they, they go after the guy that's pointing it out, right? Always fun. So I got an email from Todd. Todd says, as a younger evangelical, I have been attacked daily by those in your thought stream for going to Mars Hill Bible Church. So apparently Todd goes to Mars Hill Bible Church. And remember, keep in mind uh, that um, the right reverend Rob Bell called me a dog, you know, and he spelled it D-A-W-G. But he was uh, he was exegeting Philippians chapter three and uh, and lumped me in with those dogs. Um, but he, so he, so, uh, all right. So Todd, who goes to Mars Hill Bible Church, feels like he's been attacked daily by those in my thought stream. What's a thought stream? I have no idea what that is. He says, I find your entire movement a waste of resources. Another Christian group attacking a Christian. What do you think my atheist friends think when he sees us fight? What do you think God sees when he sees us fight? Yet the, the widow is alone, the hungry are not fed, the oppressed continue to have no one defend them. Why is it that you froth at the mouth about someone's interpretation of non-salvation issues? Sounds like, it sounds kind of like the Pharisees frothing about the, uh, a movement 2,000 years ago. No one is challenging your views. Could it be a sign that they, uh, that they are not needed, not relevant, that no one cares? I'm not challenging your salvation, only your motives. I don't see God in your movement, only power-hungry humans trying to grab back their reign on religion. Wow. Challenging my motives. Now, that's a funny thing, is, is that um, I, I'm, I'm generally pretty reticent to uh, say that I understand somebody's motives for doing something. You know, I'll take a stab at it, but many times I'll say that's my opinion. Because here's the deal. I can't tell you what somebody's motives are truly. I mean, when I took that ESP class on mind reading, failed it miserably. Wasn't even able to read the mind of a frog. I mean, something with a small brain. Couldn't do it. You know? So I'm miserable when it comes to divining people's motives and reading their minds. I don't know what their motives are unless they tell me what their motives are. Instead, what do we do? We take what people say and compare it to the word of god remember the bereans you know in the book of acts were it said that they had a more noble character than the thessalonians because when the apostle paul preached the gospel to them they didn't just believe it on face value they actually went and diligently looked into the scriptures to see if what paul told them was true more noble character so on a daily basis we're taking what people are saying and we're comparing it to the word of god now, it doesn't necessarily mean I have a noble character, but I can tell you this. Um, uh, how much money do I make doing this? Uh, none. 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 Right. Right now, I'm still paying for the privilege to do this radio show. So um, how much power do I have? Some. I have some power? Yes. Really? Yeah. How do I wield this power? Well, you don't wield it. Oh, I don't. <laughs> Apparently, see, because here's the deal. My motive for doing this is that I'm power hungry and I'm a human that's trying to grab back the reins on religion. No, actually, my motives for doing this is because I'm really, really, really 
concerned and love my neighbor. I don't want to see my neighbors going to hell because they believe heresies and false doctrine. I mean, what kind of a neighbor would I be if I didn't say, hey, wait a second, that's not what God's word teaches and what you're being told is not spiritually true. And unlike other people, I don't necessarily think that, um, that you know, false doctrine is just one of those nonchalant things that God can care less about. You know, it's kind of a, God's pretty laissez-faire about it. Now, some doctrines are core doctrines. They're, they're non-negotiable. Others, um, you know, you're not going to hell if you believe it. And then some, you know, they're, they're kind of like on the line. They're really dangerous, and they have a, the ability to, kind, you know, to undermine the gospel of Christ. So, but what does Paul say? What does Paul say? You know, sound doctrine. Let's, uh, let me, sound, doing a, doing a word search in my, I gotta get out of the King James or I'm gonna go crazy here. Sound doctrine. Titus comes to mind here. Um, here we go. Titus chapter uh, 1, talking about an overseer, says, as overseer must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. Hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, um, it, that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Well, it sounds to me like uh, Paul was basically... If I'm a power hungry uh, man who is trying to keep the reins of power and religion from falling into the creative guys' hands, right? No, okay. Scripture is clear: the perp, you know that we are to uh, in, give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Period. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, and, and so you know you got all these great passages. And uh, let's see, it's like 2 Timothy 4. Let me read this up. Got to switch over to verse mode here. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. All right? Or how about Jude? Jude, the brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle. In fact, there's only one chapter. If someone says, go to Jude chapter 2, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about or they're tricking you. Jude chapter 1. <laughs> there's only one. Uh, begin, Jude begins, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, of our God into sensuality, or deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Jude says to contend for the faith. Why? Because there's people who are perverting the gospel. They're not teaching the real thing. Or we can take a look at Galatians chapter 1. Um, Paul writing to the Galatian church, starting at verse 6. 
says, I'm astonished, you Galatians, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So, help me out here. Um, you know, it sounds like the apostles were pretty dead set on sound doctrine. Sounds like it. They took this stuff pretty seriously, you know, and they even to the point of telling us to rebuke and correct those who are teaching false doctrine. Well, if there's a such thing as false doctrine, there's a such thing as true doctrine. There's a such thing as true doctrine. There's false doctrine. You know, it kind of works that way. Truth and error. Okay. What are we as Christians supposed to do? Be in God's word and compare what people are teaching us, regardless of whether or not he's a nice guy, whether or not he has good intentions, whether or not he feeds the poor, stands for the unjust, you know, stands, you know, you know, is for justice for the people who don't have justice. Regardless of what, you know, how good his works might appear, you also have to take people's doctrine and compare it to the word of God. Okay. Now, just kind of as a note, um, Jesus Christ, when he was asked about the end times, Matthew 24, okay, watch what Jesus says. First thing out of his mouth, okay, you know, the, there's this concept, you know, that when somebody's giving an answer to a question, that the first thing is usually one of, is like the most important thing, okay, it has primacy. Listen to this, Matthew 24, verse 3. As he, that's Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. Jesus answered them, see to it that no one leads you astray. Another translation says, see to it that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name. Okay. Okay, Jesus right out of the shoot talking about what it's going to be like in the last times. By the way, we've been in the last time since Jesus ascended to heaven, right? See, Jesus says, see to it that no one deceives you. And he says that many are going to come in my name. He doesn't say that they're going to come in the name of Buddha. He doesn't say that they're going to come in the name of Muhammad, that they're going to come in the name of Hare Krishna, Shiva, Vishnu, or any of those Hindu cats, or Baal, or, or Asherah, or Molech. He says they're the false prophets are going to come in his name they're going to come to you in the name of jesus <clears throat> see to it that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying i'm the christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of war see that you you are not alarmed for this must take place for nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom so yeah so first thing out of the shoot is deception jesus don't let anyone deceive you false christ false prophets in fact talking about the lawless one and talking about how bad the false prophecies are going to get the false prophets are going to get in the last days some of these people are going to actually perform false signs and false wonders to deceive the elect if that were possible so we as christians must soberly diligently take what people say and compare it to the word of god is what so and so said true and it's not a small thing when somebody twists God's word. It's a, it's a big thing. It's an important thing. So, I, you know, Todd, I, I'm sorry that you feel that uh, 
people in my movement are, are a waste of resources. <laughs> this apparently this is a waste of resources. Fighting for the faith is a waste of resources. Um, because right belief is important. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and truth. Jesus said. All right, now we get to uh, another email, and this email is actually kind of um, the, the similar questions come up in this email as they do in, in some of the others. So I'm going to kind of lump, if you wrote an email to me regarding the, the issue of infant baptism, first of all, thanks for writing and thanks for challenging me. This is good stuff. You should be doing so. And I'm glad that you're not just taking my word for it and that you're wrestling with this issue by going into God's word. Okay. Um, Chick three wrote, okay. You remember? Okay. We got, we got, we got chick, we got Mrs. Chick, and then we got chick three. Okay. Chick three, her name is Dana. All right. Chick three writes, you know, regarding infant baptism. Let's see. Um, She says, I hope you can answer my infant baptism questions. A friend of mine believes in covenant baptism. That's a reformed concept. Okay. Someone asked, you know, someone said to me that I should consider debating um, uh, the guy from the Narrow Mind podcast. Uh, Gene, I'd love to do that. Um, he says that okay, talking about covenant baptism, he says that's not what Lutheran believes, uh, Lutherans believe is it. No, we don't believe in covenant baptism. That's something different. It seems like a stretch to me. So I started looking up what Lutherans believe since you are Lutheran and seem to handle scripture well. I finally came across an article written by Dude 2. Dude 2 is a pastor, Brian Wolfmuller. And he says on your website, and I still don't understand, so I want to ask you my questions in hopes that you can understand where infant baptism people are coming from. Um, so that I can understand them. Uh, Colossians two twelve through fourteen, um, uh, with the infants having faith and being baptized, does this mean that their sins, uh, that their sins are nailed to the cross already? Okay, that's an interesting question. Um, if so, isn't that going against Scripture? What calls us to repent? Now, this is the rub. Okay, is I got several emails with people saying, okay, listen, you know, I don't think you're you're reading Scripture right because Scripture calls us to repent of our sins. How can an infant repent? Okay. Now that is a great question. Okay. Now, you know, there's more to her question, but that's really what it, what it boils down to is on the repentance part of it. And and for the sake of time, we're not going to get to all of her, all the issues that she raises. So the question is, is if you believe in infant baptism, what do you do with this whole repentance thing? Right? Because the call of the gospel is repent and believe the gospel, right? Christ says that, uh, that what, you know, in uh, Luke 24, that, that we're to go out and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ, right? So what do you do with an infant? You know, how can we say that they repent? Well, this kind of comes to the question that I'm going to kind of throw it back in in the form of another question. Okay. Does the scripture teach that repentance is our part and that faith is something that God gives us? Or does it say that God gives us repentance as well? This is important. Okay. Okay. Now, somebody asked me, uh, you know, know, Chris, uh, this whole infant baptism thing, just, you know, having a rough time with it, you know, how can an infant believe, you know, how how can they have faith? Okay. Well, when you ask a question like that, my question immediately is, uh, how how does a 40-year-old adult become a Christian? How do they have faith? Is it something they worked up from within themselves? Or is it something that God gave them as a gift? The biblical answer, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God. What is the it? Salvation and faith. Okay. The ability to believe, to trust, to have faith, that faith is a gift from God. It's not from you. You can't conjure it up. You can't flex some muscle inside of your heart to make it come alive. You can't fan it into flame because it's a spark that's dying. It, 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 you don't. Ha- you either have faith or you don't have faith. And if you have faith, it is given to you as a gift from God. That's what Scripture makes clear. So the question then comes in, well, where does repentance fit into this? Well, I would like you to consider a couple of other passages of Scripture. Okay? If you have your Bible, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Okay? 2 Timothy 2. Okay, and the relevant verses are verses 24 through 25. However, what's our what's our cardinal rule when it comes to reading scripture? Context, context and context. Those are the three most important things. So we read now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood, clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable there. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as wholly useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Who is he writing to here? Pastor Timothy, a Christian. Okay. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone and able to teach and patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 25, let me read that again. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Who is it that grants repentance? God. God does. Okay? So repentance is not our cognitive part in all of this. Okay? If God gives us salvation and faith, in this passage is one passage, and then I'm going to show you another one, that makes it clear that it is God who grants repentance. So God grants repentance to adults through means, the preaching of the word. And he grants repentance also via baptism. God is the one who grants it. Okay? 1 Peter 3, baptism now saves you. It is considered a means of grace according to Scripture. And what happens in our baptism? Go back and review the passages. Our sins are remitted. Our sins are washed away. We are buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. Our hearts are circumcised by Christ. We are clothed with Christ. These are all of the promises associated with baptism. Who is an appropriate candidate for baptism? A sinner. A sinner. That's the qualifications, by the way. All right, let me read another passage for you. If you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 11. Okay. Acts chapter 11. We will answer this one also. Okay. Context, context, context. All right. Let me read this one for you. Um, this is... Uh, this is kind of the aftermath of the uh, the first Gentile believer really uh, really becoming a Christian, Cornelius, right? God says sends the apostle Peter to his house, and so this is his um, 
Peter relaying this the story, what happened, and and I'm going to read this in context so we get the full story here. Now the apostles and the brothers, this is verse one, who were who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word, word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, "You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them." You hear this wah 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 thing going on, okay? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a a great sheet descending down, let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. Think to yourself, unclean animals. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again to heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gifts to them as he gave to us when we when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was it? Who was I that I could stand in the way of God? When they heard this, things fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Another great passage. Who's the one who grants repentance? God. God. God does. So here's the deal. Repentance is not our part, and then faith is, is the thing that God gives us as a gift. That's not how this works. Through the means of grace preaching of the word, and I would argue baptism as well. God changes us, causes us and grants us repentance and gives us faith. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. You know, how how is it that uh, uh, Paul Washer likened it to? Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. All evangelism is like preaching in the Valley of the Dry Bones. You're prophesying to dead bones. Dead bones can't hear. They don't have ears. And yet God told Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. In the same way, evangelism is like preaching to bones. You are preaching to people who are spiritually dead. It's If, if I were to go to a cemetery, or let's say I decided to go to a funeral for a loved one, and they're sitting you know, at, in, in, in the church or in the little reception area at the mortuary is, is the casket open for us to, you know, to give our last respects. I don't go up to the dead person and say, just change your mind, just repent. Come on, get out, you know, make your first move and then God will do the rest. They're dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Repentance is not our part. Repentance is granted and given through the working of the Holy Spirit, through the means of grace, preaching of the word, 
and baptism. So those of you who, who have emailed me regarding infant baptism and are, and are basically taking issue on the grounds that infants can't repent, I would say neither can adults unless God grants them. So anyway, you're trying to turn salvation to some kind of a cognitive work that you do. It's not. It's God's work from beginning to end, and it's for all people. And Christ says, don't forbid the little children from coming to me and have the faith of an infant. Yet we have a, I have a strong problem with this idea that God gives salvation to infants. Of course he would give salvation to infants. They're sinners too. All right. All right. We're going to take our first break. And when we come back, yeah, I might do one more listener email and then we will uh, get on to some news stories. And then after that, we're going to be talking about the, the, the new book that's recently on the bestseller list, Rick Warren's The Purpose of Christmas. And we're going to find out if whether or not I can recommend this in any good conscience to anybody. Um, <laughs> well, we'll find out. All right. So if you would like to email me uh, regarding anything you've heard so far, you can at... Uh, Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. 
you out there? How am I supposed to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, sense, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. All right. Okay, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. And uh, just want to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. Now, I still pay for the privilege, but 
I would like to ask you to consider helping to offset our expenses. And the way that you would do that is by supporting Fighting for the Faith by sending a, a gift to Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, your financial support is needed for the continuation and, and expansion of this important outreach. So, so by supporting Fighting for the Faith, by sending your gift to Pirate Christian Radio, you not only help Fighting for the Faith, you also help the overall mission of Pirate Christian Radio, which really our goal is to bring you Christ and Him crucified, to actually have Christ-centered programming. And so our goal is that anytime you listen to Pirate Christian Radio, fighting for the, you know what, whatever the program is, you're going to hear about the gospel. You're going to hear about Jesus Christ. You're going to hear the faith defended. You're going to hear the faith proclaimed. You're going to hear Christ crucified for your sins proclaimed. And so the way you would support us is by sending your uh, gift to uh, Pirate Christian Radio, Post Office Box 791, San Juan Capistrano, California 92693. That's Pirate Christian Radio, Post Office Box 791, San Juan Capistrano, California 92693. Okay, moving along here. um, Just want to – the show that we did on Friday – Bizarre. Did you hear? Did you get a chance to hear it? Yeah, I thought they were I, I was completely exasperated. I was playing something from Benny Hinn, and I was completely agreeing with him. I was afraid that a wormhole was going to open up in the universe, and I was going to be sucked into a different dimension. You know, like a Twilight Zone episode. It was bizarre. And you know, you know, at the end, I was pulling my hair out. So, Aaron writes. He says, after listening to the audio, uh, Benny Hinn. At one point, I said to myself, "Where is Benny Hinn, and what is John MacArthur doing there?" <laughs> <laughs> What have you done with Benny Hinn? <laughs> Why is John McCarthy? Yeah, it was like it was like. In fact, you know, Aaron points out it really does. It really did sound like Benny Hinn was channeling John MacArthur. It was crazy. He says, but in all seriousness, this is not the first time Benny Hinn has said something sensible. Aaron says, if I go back into the old archives of TBN and his ministry, there is footage of him excoriating preachers who use the pulpit to turn a prophet and condemning the Jesus died spiritually doctrine as blasphemy. But you're right uh, there where time, uh, where times listening to Benny Hinn, it felt like it was it was in Bizarro World. Now, I'm not as cynical uh, to think uh, that this is Hinn doing a hit piece on Todd Bentley. I do think Hinn still needs to repent, but I think this came out of a legit concern. After all, Paul uh, Paul says, to paraphrase, uh, whether the gospel is preached for profit or not, I'm thankful that it is preached. You know, I think it brings up a good point. You know, Paul, this is one of the things I struggle with early on in, in Christianity is in reading the opening chapters of Philippians, Paul didn't care what people's motives were for preaching the gospel as long as the gospel was preached. <laughs> <sighs> he says that there is an old Chinese saying that says, may you live in interesting times. Uh, well, my friend, we sure are. That's absolutely true. So, by the way, uh, there was a little bit of news on the Todd Bentley front this uh, this week. Now, if you if I think we mentioned this, Todd Bentley, uh, the uh, the whole Lakeland, Florida outpouring of the spirit that supposedly, you know, was that people were flying to from all over the world um, uh, this past summer kind of came to a fizz, kind of ended with a fizzle. And the reason why is because it came out that uh, Todd Bentley was having an inappropriate relationship, okay, with a gal that was on his staff there. And on the 20th of November, which is just a couple of days ago, uh, Fresh Fire Ministries actually issued a statement regarding Todd Bentley that uh, took took the language from inappropriate relationship to now they're calling infidelity and outright adultery. So, and apparently, so, 
you know, God was, um, you know, you know, all the time that we were experiencing this florid outpouring, this guy was having an inappropriate, adulterous, infidel, in, infidelitous, that's not a word, relationship with a gal on his staff. Okay. There's all kinds of problems, but this is just the, you know, the one of them. And we don't rejoice in this. And we really, you know, we must pray for Todd Bentley and his wife and his children. He has children. You know, this, the breaking up of someone's family is a serious thing. So anyway, all right, moving along here. Okay. Tony Jones, the former director of emerge of the directorless emer, uh, emergent village. Because you know, Emergent Village claims to be some kind of a you know loose network conglomeration, mystical fog, jelloey type organization of of like minded individuals who are having a conversation. A conversation. Um, Tony Jones writes for uh, BeliefNet. Now, if you've ever been to BeliefNet, yeah. In fact, if you really want to have an eye opening experience, I recommend going to BeliefNet and just perusing the spiritual resources that are available there. It's definitely an eye-opening experience. It is... Have you seen those YouTube videos with the guy, the Blendtec blenders? You know, I have not you seen have that. not seen that. Okay. If you haven't seen those, it's worth seeing. Go to YouTube and type in Blendtec or the words, will it blend? And apparently Blendtec blenders are these amazing blenders that can blend just about anything he he the the guy who he's dresses in a science lab coat and he puts on safety goggles and so you know he he blended an iphone one time you know yeah will it blend and it turns out will it the only thing i've i have i've seen him blend that didn't blend was he put chuck norris in there chuck norris wouldn't blend <laughs> little plastic chuck norris yeah little plastic chuck norris you know couldn't blend chuck norris but um he's tough yeah but belief net is like is like you stick all the world religions into the blender, into the Blendtec blender, and will it blend? Well, apparently it does. Christianity is supposed to be like Chuck Norris, though. It's not supposed to blend with the other religions. But had belief net, it does. You see? It makes you go, hmm, is that really Christianity? So, anyway, Tony Jones, uh, you know, author of The New Christians. Apparently there was a recall on the old ones. And there's now a new breed of Christians out there. And, uh, you know, he's he's one of the head gurus of the emergent movement, and he attends Solomon Tort, uh, Solomon's Porch, Torch, Solomon's Porch there in Minnesota with uh, Doug Paget, who we interviewed here on Fighting for the Faith. And um, he's written a piece at BeliefNet called How I Went From There to Here, Same-Sex Marriage Blogalog. Apparently it's not a dialogue, it's a blogalog. Why is it that people just come up with these silly names? Anyways, so he's talking to a guy named Rod, okay? He says, I have a couple of vivid memories of the family room we called the TV room in the house in which we lived until I was nine. The first was asking my mom about streaking right during the streaking boom of 1974. Well, that's quite a memory. Um, that would have made me six years old. I think I, I heard the song, the, the Streak, having been a student at UC Berkeley in the mid-60s. My mom was quite familiar with nudity on campus. Why is he writing about these things? And the second uh, is a similar memory. I don't know what I was watching with my younger brother, Andrew, but the word gay was used. And I remember walking into the kitchen, my brother uh, trailing me and asking my mom what gay meant. 
It must have been one of those moments when a parent instinctively knows that it's time for a sit-down chat. And that's exactly what she did. I don't remember exactly how she explained same-sex love to us, but I do vividly remember one thing she said. Tony and Andrew, she said, looking at us intently, I want you to know that your father and I will still love you no matter whom you love, and you can always bring home to our house anyone you love. Okay. I suppose what struck my seven or eight year old self was that her statement implied that there were families in which being gay was not acceptable, in which family members were not necessarily allowed to bring home the person they loved, particularly if the lovers were of the same gender. From there, I didn't think much about homosexuality for many years. I didn't know any gay kids in junior high or high school. Well, at least I didn't know any who admitted that they were gay. The Adena, Minnesota of my youth wasn't the most diverse community. Of course, I did have gay friends, and I didn't know it. My best friend in ninth grade, for instance, was constantly being called a fag. That's a terrible word. Uh, by others in junior high, and I didn't uh, think much of it since Steve seemed uh, not much different than I. We spent most of our time together at church, and we were both considered leaders in the youth group. I lost touch with Steve during high school. Years later, our junior high pastor, Paul, told me that uh, Steve had recently died of AIDS. Paul reached out to Steve's family to offer condolences and offer to perform the memorial service, but Steve's dad responded to Paul with vehement anger. He told Paul that he blamed Steve's death on the church and that he would never step foot in a church again. The same goes for high school and college. I had gay friends, but I didn't find out that they were gay until years later when they came out. Then I went. Uh, then it came to what I thought. Uh, when it came to what I thought about homosexuality as a Christian, I pretty much walked the middle of the road. I've always thought that all persons should be afforded the same rights and no one should be discriminated against. But I also knew that the biblical prohibitions to homosexual sex should be taken seriously. Now, I want to point something out here. This is one of the few times that um, Tony Jones, in this little blogologue article, is even going to make a reference to what the Bible says. Okay. Now, before I go any farther... How is it that we Christians are to decide what our opinions should be regarding homosexuality? Are we free to just, is this, does this fall into the category of Christian liberty? Where we're free to just make up our own minds and whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's good for me is good for me. It's kind of like, you know, uh, unicorns. No, I'm kidding. No, no, it, no, you know, like, like, you know, issues of Christian liberty where, you know, where there's no law, there is no sin. Okay. So can you listen to uh, to Van Halen or not? Okay. Falls under Christian liberty. Okay. So is, is that what homosexuality is like? Is it like one of those Christian liberty things? You can do what you want to do or whatever. Or does the Bible give very specific information about what God believes, what God thinks, what God will do regarding the issue of homosexuality? I think the answer is B. Yeah, you're going to go with B. Yeah. You know, you're closed-minded. You're a bigot. That's all. <laughs> well. Yeah, okay, okay. So, no, I, the reason I ask this is because, you know, Tony Jones here is just says, I also knew that the biblical prohibitions to homosexual sex should be taken seriously. Does he continue to take them seriously? Well, let's continue reading. He says, I remember quite a few debates in which I argued against homosexuality using the argument from natural law, the book of Genesis, and my own pithy deal closer, look, the parts don't fit. The plumbing's not right. That's how we know how God feels about it. Okay. How about biblical 
prohibitions. Anyway, he says, aside from that rather crass and unsophisticated argument, I didn't talk about it much and didn't think about it much. Confronted with a gay couple who wanted to teach Sunday school, the church staff on which I was serving in the late 1990s studied the issue, read a book, Homosexuality in Church, Both Sides of the Debate. There's a debate? Anyway, he says about it, about it and, and they took a vote. We were each given a sheet of paper with a line on it that represented a spectrum. On one end was shouldn't be members, and on the other end was ordained. Between, between were members only, teach Sunday school, deacons in church council, and weddings. When plotted out, the majority of our large church staff clustered around the middle, allowing gays to serve as laypersons in leadership, but stopping short of blessing gay marriage unions. Apparently, we're now to the point where the way we decide this is by taking a vote. Story continues. As I gained little, as I gained a little prominence as an author in the youth ministry world, people began asking me my opinion on homosexuality. Are we allowed to have opinions about it? No, it's not really. A, how come people don't ask? How come they weren't asking him about his opinion about adultery? <laughs> how about murder? Are we allowed to have opinions about murder? No, no, no. Okay, I often quoted one of my seminary professors, Bill Panel, who was involved in the civil rights movement. I had lunch with him during my last semester at seminary, and as we drove back to campus, he said to me, civil rights and abortion will be nothing compared to how much the church has to deal with homosexuality. I'm glad it's your generation and not mine who will have to figure it out. What a weasel. (laughs) Anyway, he says, with that in mind, I always responded, I'm holding that issue in abeyance. I haven't made up my mind yet, and I'm in no hurry to. Homosexuality, I would say, is one is one issue that I don't want to get wrong. Well, where do we go to find out if you got it right? If, if you don't want to get it wrong, how would we know if we got it right? Take a vote? How, does, how do you feel? Use the force? How about witching rods? You know, we can get, you get those little witching rods and we can, like, you know, put, you know, homosexuality is a sin in words on one side of the table. And we can say homosexuality is okay on the other side of the table. And then when you, when you hold the witching rods over, if they cross over, you know, one of the – then we, we know, right? Consult <clears throat> right. your pet rock? Yeah, cons- absolutely possible there. If your pet rock, rock talks to you, you can ask your pet rock. <clears throat> okay. And yet all the time I could feel myself drift, drifting toward acceptance that gay persons are fully human persons and should be afforded all of the cultural and ecclesial benefits that I am. He says, aha, my critics will laugh derisively. I knew he he and his ilk were on a continuous leftward slide. And that's, that's his words, not mine. He says, in any case, I now believe that gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgenders can live in accord with biblical Christianity at least as much as, as any of us can and that their monogamy can and should be sanctioned and uh, and blessed by church and state. Okay? So that's Tony Jones's opinion. Uh, he says, I could feel myself drifting toward acceptance. Drifting. Where's God's word in all of this? He doesn't really have any. Right. I mean, okay, and, and he says, so he says, he says he now believes that gay, lesbian, transgendered people can live in accord with biblical Christianity 
and that their monogamy, that means their marriage, can be and should be sanctioned and blessed by church and state. So as long as a homosexual transgender person is in a monogamous committed relationship, it should be sanctioned by the church and the state. What does God's word say about this? Now, funny enough, God's word actually isn't very um, vague. Let me uh, pull up a couple of passages here. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll go New Testament on on everybody here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Okay, we're going to look specifically at verse 9, but what again is our uh, cardinal rule? Context, context, um, and then a little bit more context. So um, here we go. So listen to this. All right, in context, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not... Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are uh, to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brothers and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at at all with one another is already to a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's some baptismal talk going on there right there. Um, so there we go. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine says that, um, men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. What do you think? Pretty clear. What's okay. And it, it mentions adulterers too, right? Yes. Okay. So here's the biblical position on this. Adulterers are heterosexual people who are guilty of sexual immorality homosexuals are homosexual offenders regarding sexual immorality. It's the two forms of sexual immorality. Both are forbidden by scripture forbidden by God himself. Okay. Do you have the Greek close by? Yes. I happen to have the Greek close by. Why? Because I have my computerized Bible with me handy. And uh, the Greek word there is actually a pretty interesting word. It's kind of a conglomerate of two words. Let me pull this up real quick. Um, Okay. Dollars are homosexual offenders. Here it is. Okay. Um, arse, it's arsenicoites. Let me uh, let me pull this up in a bdag here. Arsenicoites, a male who engages in sexual activity with people of his own sex. Okay. Arsenicoites. Interesting word. Okay. Um, 
you know what? I should put a link up. The, the issues, etc. had uh, a, a program that, where they dealt with this from the Greek far better than I'm going to have time to do with. But it's, it's, it's really clear what this word, what this passage means. But this isn't the only passage in the New Testament that deals with it. Okay, so we got we to gotta take a look at what's going on here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Tim 1. The, word, uh, the passage we're looking for um, is going to be in the ESV. It's, uh, again, it's that, that Greek word again, arsenikoites. Okay. Um, yeah, let me read this. Here we go. Um, it's verse 10. We'll start at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, and for the unholy and the profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Okay, so there we got the arsenikoites, Greek word again being used. Um, there in verse 10, and it says that homosexuality, practicing homosexuality is not in accordance with sound doctrine. Neither is adultery. Okay. And there's, there's plenty of passages in the scriptures that forbid homosexuality. Okay. Especially even in the, uh, in the old Testament couldn't be clearer. You know, in fact, in the Old Testament, the, the, the instructions are if you see a man sleeping with another man the way uh, a man sleeps with a woman, um, the punishment for such behavior was capital punishment. It was death. Okay? God does not turn a blind eye to homosexual sin. And the church cannot bless or sanction homosexuality because God's word forbids it to do so. Instead, the church is to call homosexuals to repentance the same way it's to call adulterers, murderers, thieves, liars, cheats, gossips to repentance for their sins as well. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Looks like it. Okay, so how did uh, Tony Jones come to his conclusion? He just basically felt he was drifting towards a more accepting view. Felt. He was using the force. His feelings were the things that uh, made the decision for him. As Christians, are feelings the things that we use to decide the, you know, on issues like this? Well, I don't feel like adultery is, is a sin anymore. And, you know, therefore, I'm just going to go and, you know... I, in fact, I would like the church to sanction my adultery because I feel like that's the what it should do. Why isn't somebody making that argument? Because the same the, the, the homosexuality shows up in the same list of sins as, as adultery, murder, um, lying, perjuring, you know, things of that nature. You know, I, I feel that we need to sanction lying. We really need to sanction it. We need to sanction, you know, slavery again. Because, I mean, I feel that's what we need to do. Who cares about your feelings? So, Tony Jones, um, you know, I'm not laughing here, although, you, you know. You know, what I would definitely say is is that whether you've gone left or whatever direction you've headed to, the problem here is that you've unbuckled yourself from the word of God. God's word decides these things, not you and your feelings or votes or whatever, or, or this, this idea of being politically correct and tolerant and things of that nature. No, we don't decide these issues. God's word does. And where God speaks definitively, we are to speak definitively. 
and where God's word is silent and doesn't give us any clear instruction, we, we make decisions based upon faith. But God's word clearly says that homosexuality is a sin. It's not in accord with sound doctrine. And no Christian church or pastor or a person who calls himself a Christian is at liberty to just wink and say, ah, it's no big deal. No big deal. Yeah, Tony Jones made this decision based purely on feelings. And feeling, what do they say? The road to uh, hell is paved with good intentions. Isn't that how that goes? Substituting scripture for your feelings. That's right. And I'm sorry, but I practice sola scriptura, which means that God's word alone is what makes these decisions for us. Anyway, all right, we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Rick Warren's The Purpose of Christmas. Tim Challies has written a pretty good review, and I've spent some time in the book and can't recommend it. You know, he... We'll talk about it when we get back. Anyway, so if you'd like to email us regarding anything you've heard so far in the program, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. If you'd like to share with me your feelings about which sins you think that we should just wink at and let the church condone and accept, go ahead and send me your list. I'd be interested to see that. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Now, those of you who follow the church here, the liturgical church here, it's it's New Year's. You know, yesterday was New Year's Day. It's the beginning of a new church year. Advent. Looking forward to the coming of Christ. There actually used to be a time when... Uh, People would celebrate Advent in anticipation of Christmas, and they wouldn't even get their Christmas trees until, like, Christmas Eve. Okay? Now, the American version, we just kind of start Christmas. We drift into Christmas uh, right around uh, Halloween. and um, But officially, supposedly, supposedly kicks off the day after Thanksgiving on Black Friday. <laughs> and, uh, and, and perennial, the, the big battle every year is over... You know those people who would t- who are trying to take Christ out of Christmas, the uh, you know, and so you got the people who are having holiday parades instead of Christmas parades, and everyone getting bent and tweaked out of you know torqued out of shape about that whole thing. You know, here's the deal, okay? Um, I reserve my uh, getting upset to when a church does it, okay? Because who is Walmart? Retailer. He's is 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 Walmart a he or a who? No, it's an it's, it. It's an it's a what? Walmart is a store. It's not a human being. Okay, and they're a corporation, right? Corporations are not called to do the heavy lifting of proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Last time I checked, human beings are. Okay. And and those of you who get bent out of shape because your local government or community isn't carrying the Christian message during Christmas, where where in the Constitution does it say that's their job? Doesn't okay. Now I understand. You know, this, we're drifting farther and farther away from a Christian society into a one that's pagan and 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 antithetical and sometimes outright hostile to Christianity. Well, Christians, you better uh, – it's your job to proclaim Christ. It's not your state government's job. It's not the federal government's job. It's not Walmart's job. It's not Target's job. It's not Macy's job. It's your job. Okay? Macy's hasn't been tasked with the job of going and making disciples of all nations. Christians have. Okay? So if you're getting bent out of shape and torqued when people are, you know, kind of – having this generic holiday thing, well, then you better get out and preach Christ and him crucified. Start start preaching the gospel. Let your neighbors know about the great, the great gift of Christmas. That's Christ crucified for the sins of the world and how it applies to them. Call them to repentance. Call them to faith in Christ. But don't expect Macy's to do it and don't expect Walmart to do it or the feds to do it or the state government to do it or your local township. That's not their job. It's your job. So anyway, there's there's a funny song that's uh, running around the uh, internet now t- talking about the PC crowd. It's called Happy uh, Ramahana Kwanzamas. <laughs> Got to play it for you. There, there's um, you'll, if, when I play this, you're going to hear some beeping. You know, like, like they're going to bleep out a word. The word they're bleeping out is Christ. It's kind of funny. But anyway, l- 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 here we go. Have a Ramahana Kwanzmas, it's the PC time of year. Every holiday displayed because of morbid fear. 
Happy Ramahana Kwanzmas. Yeah, we know the name is queer. Oh, good golly, can't offend nobody on Christmas this year. Yeah, they beeped out the word Christ. <laughs> oh, no, the Eskimo. All right, well, that's enough of that. Yeah, you, you kind of get the point. Um. All right. So back to so here's the deal. I'm not going to fight the culture if they want to have Ramahana Kwanzamas. Who cares? My job as a Christian is to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. It's not the job of the Muslim, the Jew, the atheist, the agnostic to carry the heavy lifting of preaching Christ and Him crucified and making disciples of all nations. It's our job. Okay. Just want to point that little thing out. So if you want to get all upset because you know Macy's isn't doing the heavy lifting of, regarding Christmas, who cares? You know, who is Macy? Who's Walmart? Is is the corporation Walmart going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? No. No, it's not. Okay. All right. So I'm holding in my hand. the. It's now a best-selling book. Okay. A little pricey little thing, too. $17.99 in the U.S., a little hardcover edition. The Purpose of Christmas by uh, Rick Warren who's taking the word purpose and absolutely just ruined it for me. <laughs> and the question is, can I recommend uh, this book? I mean, would I recommend, you know what, you know what this book is supposedly for? It's to tell you the purpose of Christmas so that you can give it to your unbelieving friends so they can hear the gospel and, uh, and, and they would become Christians. It's really, that's really the kind of the, the, it's, it's kind of like the four spiritual laws of purpose driven style. And it, it reads really quick. It's, you know, just a little over a hundred pages. It's like a buck 20 as far as pages are concerned. And they read real quick because it's like double spaced, you know, big words. You can you can uh, toilet reading. You can get through this really quickly. The question is, uh, would I recommend this to people to give to their unbelieving, unsaved uh, friends so that they can ex- they can unpack the uh, the the purpose of Christmas and and have the great Christmas gift given to them? The answer is no way, no, <laughs> no, no. Now I will I, I'll say this, okay. Warren does a better job in this book of actually talking about what biblical saving faith is than he does in the purpose driven life. The, the problem is, is that um, in typical Rick Warren fashion, he utterly mangles the scriptures drives me nuts. And uh, there's a guy out there on the internet who's pretty famous for his book reviews. His name is Tim Challies. And, uh, I recommend his uh, his review. Although I, Tim, if you listen to this program, you need footnotes. I need footnotes here. It would help people out if you can point them to the actual pages. But uh, having read the book, I was able to mark them myself. So, but um, let me let me read from Tim Challey's review, and which I think is a, a very even handed way of looking at it. He says Rick Warren's purpose driven life was a phenomenon, selling tens of millions of copies. And remaining on the New York Times bestseller list for um, not for mere weeks or months, but for years, tens of thousands of churches and organizations have participated in a 40 Days of Purpose program, encouraging their members to read the book and implementing its teachings. While several books bearing Warren's name have been released since The Purpose Driven Life, uh, none have been much more than condensed versions of The Purpose Driven Life. This year, just in time for the holiday season, The Purpose of Christmas, a book that is, if not entirely new, at least predominantly so. This is purpose-driven life light is really what it, when you read it. It says, the purpose of Christmas is a gift book meant to be purchased by Christians and given away to unbelievers as a Christmas gift. Don't do it, folks. And don't, I'm serious, don't do it. If you don't, you find something far better than this. 
It, it was an extended track. He says it's an extended track. That's what I think. It's an extended track of sorts, sharing the gospel message through the Christmas story. Warren's first Warren first looks at the purpose of Christmas, and then through the rest of the book, suggests that Christmas is a time for celebration, a time for salvation, a time for reconciliation. Well, he even talks about freedom from uh, bad habits in here, like Joel Osteen. <clears throat> okay. Uh, much of what he shares is good and contains solid biblical truth. He affirms strongly that salvation is not a matter of trying but trusting. This is a direct quote from the book. And it's not a matter of proving you deserve it but accepting it by faith knowing that you don't deserve it. Again, quote directly from the book. And you know I, that's why I said he does a better job here than he did in the uh, Purpose Driven Church, uh, the Purpose Driven Life. All you need to do is accept what he's already done for you. There's nothing more to add. It's grace plus nothing. Your Christmas gift comes by grace through faith. It's not what you do but whom you trust that gets you into heaven. Okay. Chalice points out, and I would agree, th- those are solid. Yeah, I, amen. Got it. But... But if only he had stopped there, you, you, I, I, if he had stopped there, I would have said, OK, I, I don't generally like Rick Warren and stuff he says. But, hey, I can I can say amen to that. I could say amen to that point. <sighs> but, OK, there's enough in the gospel in this book that I'm convinced that a person could read it and be saved by embracing the gospel message it contains. Having said that, however, I would like to offer a few reasons why I think Christians might be best served by giving their unbelieving friends a different book. I agree with Tim Challies completely. He says, I say this because there's enough of a non-gospel in this book to confuse or to potentially leave an unbeliever with a false confidence that he's been reconciled to God. Okay. The first issue presents itself in the book's earliest pages. As he did in The Purpose Driven Life, Warren makes a kind of unfair appeal to providence or destiny. It's not an accident that you are reading this book right now. God knew before the foundations of the earth what you would be doing. That, that's kind of how they, he talk, He says the same thing in The Purpose Driven Life. And so, um, yeah, let's see here. Uh, it, it, he, quote from the book, it's, it's no accident that you are reading this book. God planned your birth before you were even born. He knew that this moment was coming. In fact, it may be that all your whole life up to this moment has been preparing for you to receive God's Christmas gift to you. Well, while strictly true, could we then extend that line of reasoning to every other situation in life? It's no accident that you're beating your child. It's no accident that you're looking at pornography. This kind of statement gives the reader a false sense of the role of God in ordaining that a person would read Warren's book. You know, God foreknew that I was going to take a sip from this water bottle here at this very second. That's so deep and spiritual, man. Okay, Rick Warren continually makes rash generalizations about the nature of a person's relationship with God. He makes no distinction between the love God has for his people and the love he has for those who are not his people. This is an important thing, okay? Scripture, and this is one of my my main beefs with Rick Warren, he consistently talks to unbelievers as, you know, and he reads passages of Scripture that are written for Christians and applies them to unbelievers, you know, and um, it's he, what does the biblical pastor say? Without faith, it's impossible to please God, and that those who do not trust and believe God, they remain under God's wrath. Okay, uh, Warren doesn't talk about God's wrath very much, and it's mysteriously missing from this book too, which would help us get a, a feel for what's going on. So Warren takes actually passages of Scripture that are supposed to be implied uh, written, that are written to a Christian audience, and he applies them to the non-Christian who's supposedly reading this book because their Christian friend gave it to him. Okay, um, uh, in fact, let me give you an example here. <clears throat> okay, let me let me start this section here. Um, 
page 52 of the purpose of Christmas. Okay. And in typical Rick Warren fashion, he doesn't give the, sp- the scripture references while you're reading it. He just puts, he end notes it. And you have to go back to the end notes to find what passage of scripture he was actually quoting from. Oy, oy, oy. Okay. This is in the section called free from the expectations of others. Okay. So he's talking about a time for salvation and, he, and he's talking about salvation as being freedom freedom from guilt over the past, freedom from bitterness and resentment. And here's freedom from the expectations of others. Apparently this is one of the things that Christ died for us to set us free from the expectations of others. Rick, Rick asks, how often have you said or done things you didn't want to do simply because you wanted to avoid the disapproval of others? The Bible says the fear of human opinion disables. And while I was reading that, I went, what? Where does the Bible say that the fear of human opinion disables? Okay, folks. Okay, remember, we're being Bereans here. We're not being negative. We're being Bereans. We're having noble character. And actually, it's the footnote is footnote 26. And when you look in the end notes, footnote 26 is Proverbs 29.25. Proverbs 29.25. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to flip there. But the good news is, is that... Uh, having a computerized Bible, I will actually go there for you. Here's what it says um, in a good translation. Quote, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Rick Warren says that that passage says, the fear of human opinion disables. Okay, let me read it in a different translation. The NASB, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. NIV, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Um, RSV, uh, the fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. I see a consistent thing going on here. Nothing about human opinions. Okay, Which kind of leads to the, the issue as to why I can't recommend this book. Because Rick Warren constantly mangles God's word. Rick, if you're going to quote the Bible, would you actually quote what it actually says? doesn't say anything about human opinions. So, anyway, let me continue. Page 53. Constantly worrying about what other people think about you is a dangerous trap. Well, of course, because according to Rick Warren, uh, Proverbs 29.25 says the fear of human opinions disables. He says, it will rob you of confidence, limit your potential, drain your energy, and keep you from becoming all that God intends for you to be. The antidote to fearing disapproval is to build your life on the foundation of God's unconditional love for you. Love liberates. It is a confidence builder. The Bible says there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear hath has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect and is, is made perfect in love. No matter what you do in life, some people aren't going to like it. And the brighter the light, the more bugs it attracts. Now, this is where I think he's getting gratuitous. <clears throat> when the purpose-driven life became well-known, I became a target of mean-spirited critics who seemed to relish attacking and misrepresenting me. <laughs> uh, Rick, uh, we met face-to-face, and I told you face-to-face when we met... Uh, my issue with you is that you twist God's word and you actually don't preach the gospel. Okay. So, uh, I'm not being mean spirited. I'm pointing out a fact, something I constantly am able to do over and over and over again. Cause whenever Rick Warren says the Bible says, 
the next words that come out of his mouth are things that the Bible doesn't actually say. Because the Bible doesn't say anywhere that the fear of human opinion disables. It doesn't say that at all. Nowhere in a reputable translation. It says, all right, so, okay, so, when the purpose-driven life came out, uh, it became well-known, I became a target of mean-spirited critics who seemed to relish attacking and misrepresenting me. I tried to focus on supporting my wife, Kay, who was battling cancer at that time, but the attacks were moving along here, discouraging. During that experience, I was encouraged by God's frequent little reminders of his love for me. One weekend, the great London pastor and author John Stott and I were co-preaching a sermon at Saddleback Church. John is a spiritual giant who has been a dear friend and mentor to me. After speaking together, we were having a quiet conversation. John asked me to write the forward for his basic Christianity, his classic best seller. I was humbled that he'd want to be publicly associated with me. For weeks, every time I remembered it, I'd think of all the people around the world that John Stott knows and respects, he chose me. His love for me and uh, that of other great people I respected gave me the confidence to ignore the disapproval of people who didn't know me. Do you listen to your critics at all, Rick? I mean, we're just mean-spirited people who just don't know you. If you would actually actually tell us what God's word says in context, you wouldn't... have critics affirmation well you might have critics but it wouldn't be fellow christians basically saying dude you're not handling god's word right okay affirmation from others is encouraging but feeling deeply loved and chosen by god is far greater the bible says quote even before he made the world god loved us and chose us in christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes did you know that before the world was created god loved you the bible often refers to god's decision to love you unconditionally as god's electing or calling or choosing you you know talk about mixing things up here by the way if you check the end notes uh that's end note number 28 and note 28 is supposedly ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 okay now gotta do a little bit of work here Ephesians 1. Okay, I'm going to read it. What, what's, what's the rule for good biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. I sound like a broken record. Um, it's important. Okay, first of all, the, the epistle to the Ephesians, who was it written to, Christians or non-Christians? People. The Ephesian the church. Ephesian church. Yeah, that, those would be uh, Christians. Okay, so let me read it in context from a good translation. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's writing it to saints, right? Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed. Oh, I'm in the RSV. Hang on a second here. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious uh, grace, which he has blessed us in the uh, the beloved, in in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Okay. So Ephesians 1, 4, speaking to Christians, Christians were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, right? In love, he predestined us. Who's the us? Christians. Christians. Yeah. For adoptions as sons. So this book is supposedly written to a non-Christian audience. And Warren says... That the Bible says even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault. Speaking to non-Christians, right? 
He's not clearly distinguishing that. And his explanation by basically saying that uh, the, the Bible often refers to God's decision to love you unconditionally as God's electing or calling or choosing you. He's completely biffing the doctrine of election. I mean, it's not even coming close to what it actually <clears throat> means. Anyway, Challies writes, okay, Warren continually makes rash generalizations about the nature of a person's relationship with God. He makes no distinction between the love God has for his people and the love he has for those who are not his people. According to this view of love, Rick Warren must love me as much as he loves his wife and children, since he assumes that God loves the unbeliever every bit as much as the believer. Without distinguishing between Christians and non-Christians, Warren said, God is not mad at you. He's mad about you. He goes on to say that. Uh, he goes so far as to apply promises made to God's people to a general audience. For example, looking at Ephesians 1.4, he says, before the world was created, God loved you. He says that this love is known as choosing or electing, but fails to properly distinguish between those who have been chosen and those who have not. He says God has a great purpose and a good plan for your life. But again, he applies such promises even to those who have not received Christ. How can the promises of you know that are, that are for Christians only be applied to, in a general sense, to somebody who isn't a Christian. Okay, Challies continues in his review. He says, as he did in The Purpose Driven Life, Warren uses and abuses scripture, seemingly using translations based more on what they say than on whether or not they accurately give the sense of the text. That's the big issue with Rick Warren. He needs to repent of this practice because not only is it wrong, he's teaching others to do the same thing. The Bible is not a fortune cookie. Okay, you don't just go and find the translation that says what you want it to say. You actually need to dig into the passage and find out what God actually said, what he meant, and preach that. Okay, Warren constantly mangles God's word. I mean, constantly. It's habitual with him. All right, okay, it gives a sense. Of... Okay, this is funny. Okay, um,. Okay, and so, as he did in The Purpose Driven Life, he quotes Eliphaz, one of Job's infamous friends, as if his advice to Job is godly advice. This is hilarious. Actually, uh, folks, if you've ever read the book of Job in context, it's a very interesting book, okay, because Job is, is, is a guy who trusts God, right? And God has blessed him, and he's wealthy, he's, you know, he's got, he's doing well, he's financially well off. And, and, and so what happens is Satan basically comes to God and says, Hey, listen, you know, the only reason why this guy, this Job guy loves you is because, you know, you're, you, you protect him. You've been, you know, you know, you give him all these blessings and he's got this cushy life, but if you take everything away from him, he'll curse you. Right. And so what happens is, is that, you know, basically Job is kind of caught in the middle between, you know, between God and Satan, you know, in, in this little dialogue, this little bet that they have going on here. And so God gives Satan the ability to rip everything out of Job's hands. And he does. And, you know, Job is left penniless. His family's killed. He loses everything. He's basically sickly and has boils and is suffering. And, you know, it's just this terrible thing that's going on. And his, quote, comforters, his buddies come to him and basically say that the reason why that he's suffering these things is because he's done something wrong and he doesn't, he, he's a bad person and he needs to, to acknowledge God. That's not the reason why Job suffered these things. And Job knows it. Okay, so when Job is being comforted by his buddies, the, the advice that they are giving him is bad advice. Okay, read the book. Okay, but no, no, no. Rick Warren actually quotes one of Job's comforters, Eliphaz, as if Eliphaz is giving good spiritual advice. 
And it's found on page 103 of the uh, Purpose of Christmas. And it's uh, footnote number 62. 62 is uh, Job 22.21. All right. Job 22. Okay. Now, I've got a decent commentary here that's available to me on my computerized Bible. It's not the best one, but it's a decent one. Um, and here's what it says about Eliphaz's advice in verses in verse 25. This is this is from the NIV commentary. It says Eliphaz was no doubt sincere in his last attempt to reach Job through a call to repentance. For this call for Job to submit to be at peace with God, to hear God's word and to hide it in his heart, to return to the Almighty and forsake wickedness, to find delight in God rather than in gold, and pray to obey and become concerned about sinners, could not be improved upon by any other prophet or evangelist. There are some uh, problems, however, that beset these powerful words. They assume that Job was an ungodly man and that his major desire was to return to health and prosperity. Eliphaz's advice is not good advice. Even the commentary here, the NIV commentary, which isn't the, it's a decent one. It's not the best. I mean, basic commentators see that the advice that's being given here by Eliphaz isn't really the best. Okay. So what what is this verse that uh, that uh, that that Rick Warren is quoting? Well, it's Job twenty two twenty one, and in the ESV it reads, "Agree with God and be at peace; therefore, thereby good will come to you." Okay, this is not good advice; it's bad advice. Okay, and it assumes the wrong things. Okay, but Rick Warren, in his book, "The Purpose of Christmas." Let me read this in context. He's, he writes, starting at page 102, he says, How can an imperfect person be reconciled to a perfect God? Well, it's not a matter of compromise or bargaining or negotiating with God. Peace comes from surrender, total unconditional surrender to God. Where does that say that in the Bible? Um, you admit that God is, is God, you are, and you are not. You give up the ridiculous notion that you know more about what is best for you and what, you will make, uh, what will make you happy than your creator does. You give up the rebellious attitude and, uh, that you can pick and choose which of God's rules you follow and which ones you'll ignore, like Tony Jones. And it says, why shouldn't you surrender to God? Well, one fact is certain. There is no way that you can win a war against God. As the title of the 1980s Broadway uh, play points out, your arms are too short to box with God. As Job's friend said, stop quarreling with God. If you agree with him, you will have peace at last and things will go well for you. Does he read his Bible? You know, he's, he told me he's had six years of Greek and Hebrew. I'm not impressed at this point because he quotes passages of Scripture ridiculously. Not in context, really telling us what... Does he not realize that this is not good advice? Or maybe he was just doing a word search in his computerized Bible and he found what he was looking for. Hey, this is the right advice. Eliphaz is giving bad advice to Job here. Read it in context. Anyway... Um, let me read some more watching our time here when you get to the end of the book it's really kind of a pitch for becoming a Christian and uh, let's hear what Rick Warren says you need to do <clears throat> if you uh, page 115 if you sacrificed all that you had to buy me a priceless and personalized Christmas gift and I never took the time to unwrap and open it how could how would you feel you'd be disappointed hurt and angry at my callous rejection of your generous love and for me the gift would be worthless if I left it wrapped and sitting in the corner there would be zero benefit to me 
It is astounding that so many people have celebrated Christmas every year of their lives without ever opening their greatest gift, the most expensive Christmas gift. Jesus Christ is God's Christmas gift to you. Wrapped up in Jesus are all the benefits, blessings, and blessings mentioned in this book. It's, he, he uses the with him technique. What's in it for me? You know, free from addictions, free from people's opinions about you. Um, those benefits. A purpose... Um, okay. Uh, in Jesus, your past is forgiven. You get a purpose for living and you get a home in heaven. Why celebrate Christmas? If you're not going to open the best gift of all, the name Jesus actually means God saves right now. Jesus says to you, I can replace the frustration in your heart with peace. I can replace your guilt and shame with forgiveness. I can replace your worry and anxiety with confidence. I can replace your depression with real hope. I can fill your emptiness with meaning and purpose. And if you'll trust me completely, I can replace your confusion with clarity. But I'm not going to, but I'm not going to break down the door of your heart. You've got to invite me in. Aren't you ready to do that? <clears throat> can you say Pelagianism? It doesn't matter whether you're a Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Mormon, or have no religious background at all. God didn't send Jesus to bring us a religion. Mm-hmm. He came to make a uh, to make a relationship with God possible. Now we rejoice in wonder in the new relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus has done for us in dying for our sins and making us friends with God. He's quoting a passage of Bible. Many years ago, I prayed a simple prayer of commitment that changed my life. I've written it out for you on page 121, and I hope you will make it your prayer to God, too. But I first want to pray for you. Okay, so this is Rick, you know, Rick Warren prays a prayer for these people. And this is, so this is Rick Warren. In, in writing, he writes for the people reading this book. Father, as I write these words, I'm praying for everyone who will read them. I don't know the circumstances they are facing right now, but you do know. You know every detail of their lives up to this moment, and you love them deeply. Thank you for creating them, for loving them, for sending Jesus to be their Savior. You planned this moment before they were born, so I know that you will hear the prayer that they are about to pray. Thank you, Lord. Now, I invite you to experience the purposes of Christmas by reading the following prayer as your own. The Bible says it makes no difference who you are or where you are from. If you want God and you are ready to do as he says, the door is open. Where does it say that in the Bible? <clears throat> Hang on a second here. I'm going to look at the end notes. <clears throat> That's end note number 72, Acts chapter 10, verse 35. Holy guacamole, that's bad. That does not say that in Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> Work with me for a second here. Um, you know, sometimes I even I get broadsided by Rick Warren. <sighs> what? Acts chapter 10:35, right? Um wow. Um okay, let me get some context here. Um okay, so Acts chapter 10, this is the story of Cornelius. We remember when we read, you know, the aftermath of this meeting with Cornelius. Um Acts chapter 10 verse 30 because what's important? Context context and context uh it says this um and cornelius said four days ago about this hour i was praying in my house and at the ninth hour and behold a man stood before me in bright clothing and said cornelius your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before god send therefore to joppa and ask for simon who is called peter he is lodging in the house of simon a tanner by the sea so i sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come 
Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear what you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what ha- know what happened throughout Al Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with power and uh, with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We're all witnesses of this, that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Okay, so here we got... Uh, <clears throat> It's pretty straightforward. In a good translation, Acts chapter 10, 35 says this, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. It's not even, it's not even a full sentence. It's, this is a, well, this is a sentence fragment, right? All right, hang on a second here. Let me read how Rick Warren uses this on page 120. He says, now I invite you to experience the purposes of Christmas by reading the following prayer as your own. The Bible says, quote, it makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do as he says, the door is open. Does that say that? No. No. I I don't see it. How can he say that the Bible says something it doesn't say? This is why I cannot recommend this book. Okay, so Rick Warren continues. He says, if you are by yourself, I strongly encourage you to read it twice, first silently and then aloud. So here's the Christmas prayer that's supposedly going to get you into heaven. Check this out. This is a power. Remember that uh, the three-minute video, you know, that, you know, 1,600 people were saved after three minutes? This is even shorter than that, Okay. But the the book takes a while to read. Okay, so here's the prayer. Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, so I can get to know you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for being with me all of my life, even when I didn't know it. I realize I need a savior to set me free from sin, from myself, from all the habits, hurts, and hangups that mess up my life. I ask you to forgive me on my sins. I want to repent and live the way that you created me to live. Uh, be the Lord of my life and save me by your grace. Save me from my sins and save me from your, save me for your purpose. I want to learn to love you, trust you and become, and become what you made me to be. Thank you for creating me and choosing me to be part of your family right now. By faith, I accept the Christmas gift of your son. Fill me with your peace and assurance so that I can be a peacemaker and help me share this message of peace with others in your name. I pray. Amen. He says, pray it twice. So, uh, those of you who are not Christians, you need to pray that two times. But then listen to this. This is what Rick Warren says. When you read that, did you sincerely mean it as a prayer to God? If you did, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. Ding, 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 ding. You win. <laughs> the Bible says there is joy in heaven anytime anyone commits his or her life to Jesus. If you just now accepted the gift of God's grace by faith, the angels are having a party in heaven for you right now. So if you sincerely... Prayed that prayer. You know, Linus believed in the uh, Great Pumpkin. Sincerely. Sincerely. And he that was one of the... If, if the Great Pumpkin would only appear to the sincere children. <sighs> so are we saved by our sincerity of praying a prayer? No, it's, it's Christ, not us. Ah, backwards. Backwards. Anyway, I think you guys get the point here. There's this... Book is typical Rick Warren, mangling God's word, well-meaning as it is, 
um, filled with Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism and mangled scriptures. Uh, please don't, don't give this to your neighbors at all. If they're unbelieving, do not give them this book. Can't recommend it. Why? Because there's enough confusion in there that it could uh, actually obscure the gospel and and badly enough that they go to hell. So, can't recommend it. All right, so there we go. We're at the end of our program for the day. You know, what do we do? We just go until I'm ready, until I'm done, right? That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Folks, if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Until tomorrow, uh, God bless you. <laughs>